And I think a lot of it is, you know, we view ourselves as going to law school and paying all this money and working really hard to gain access to this legal information. So I think perhaps in a subconscious way, we think this is mine. Like I, I have earned this in a way that other people haven't. And this is how I'm going to keep my job. And I think as a future lawyer, I want to be very cognizant of the fact that this knowledge really is for everyone. And it's going to improve the entire system going forward. Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. For today's episode, we've got something really great coming up. Before we get into that, I want to put out kind of what is becoming a regular reminder that if you haven't already, we'd love it if you would go onto iTunes and maybe leave us a rating or even a review because that would really help us bump up the charts on iTunes. And if you're you're not subscribed, uh, you can go ahead and do that. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or you can find us on whatever uh, podcast app you might use. So please, you know, go ahead and do that. And then my other little plug is to make sure that you stay tuned and listen to the whole episode because we've got a very special guest for In Other News for this episode and for our next two episodes. The wonderful Georgia Furlong has put together a great other news segment with some really, really great news pieces uh, that have come out recently. So it's worth sticking around to listen to. So please do. And today's episode is, I think, for both myself and Dana, a bittersweet one because Mm. this is the episode that I recorded with our four graduating research assistants. And I wanted to talk to them about how working for the NSRLP had affected how they thought about now moving into legal practice. All four are going into articles in the next month or so, and then they will be being called to the bar and members of the legal profession. And it's a legal profession that they are entering with, I think, a pretty special perspective, having worked Mm -hmm. all this time with self-represented litigants. So you're going to hear from, as Julie said, uh, our four grads who are Megan Campbell, Ali Tijani, Rebecca Flynn, and Kayla Scaro. And all four of them have, in fact, worked for NSRLP since their first year. So as you're going to hear from them, working with self-represented litigants is their normal. So let's listen. I am delighted today to be talking to four students who have worked as research assistants throughout their time in law school for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project and who are graduating this spring. Ali Tijani, Kayla Scarrow, Megan Campbell, and Rebecca Flynn. Uh, We will put all their pictures up for you on the podcast page, although you can also find them on the team page. These four have been the backbone of an enormous amount of the work that we have done in the last three years. We're gonna miss them terribly, but we're also gonna take this chance to ask them about what it's been like as a law student to work for NSRLP and what does it mean for them going forward. So, morning everybody. Morning. Morning. I start by asking you, a few of you to comment on 
What ways has working for the NSRLP changed your ideas about legal practice and the kind of work that you think you might like to do in the future? Megan, let's start with you. Great. So I actually started working for NSRLP immediately upon entering law school. So I would say that NSRLP didn't change my views. It actually was more of a foundation. And I started as a researcher and then in second year became the manager of the case law database where it's hard to tell you how much I've learned and it's been invaluable to my education for sure. And, you know, I've read so many cases. I've read cases from almost every provincial court in all of Canada with except I think one in the Yukon. And it's so interesting because reading a judgment where one party is a self-rep it's challenging because you are looking for unique obstacles that self-reps face, but you're doing that through the judgment and the judge's words. What's unique about NSRLP is that when I'm doing all these close readings of judgments from lower courts, I've become very knowledgeable about the unique barriers and situations that SRLs find themselves in. And that is now a foundation of my legal training and is a foundation of how I problem solve and look for answers. and you know, you can't really lose that. So wherever I move forward into my career, I have this kind of, I feel unique, close knowledge of self-reps. Thanks very much, Megan. Ali, do you want to jump in here? What's, what have you learned and what are you taking forward into the work you're going to do in practice? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think just like Megan, I joined the project fairly early on in my first year. I think it was in February, actually. But before that, I had attended a workshop that you were hosting in first semester, mm. Julie. So that was my first opportunity meeting you. I had seen the poster about a workshop on the SRL phenomenon. And it wasn't something that I knew too much about at that time, but it sounded interesting. And I think what really struck me in the poster was the statistics that you mentioned, the vast number of people who are now self-representing that might not have been in the past, and that we are seeing more and more a change in the legal system. I mean, so I think that's why, as I got involved with the NSRLP, I've had so many great opportunities to learn more about this phenomenon and what needs to change in the legal system, and also the role of individual lawyers in this process. Yes. What difference does it make about to being an individual lawyers? What is the role they can play here? I think there's a few. I think the first one is just generally understanding what SRLs are going through when they're navigating the system. Um, that includes when you're dealing with a self-rep on the other side, but also when you're advancing um, or advocating for, for change in the system that you're a part of. And I think as lawyers, we're part of a system that unfortunately doesn't treat SRLs the way that they deserve to be treated. And in fact, in some ways makes it more difficult for the average person to have access to justice. And if we're part of that system, we need to be aware of our own biases and we need to be able to make sure that we're balancing our own needs as professionals and potentially business owners or employees as well as what our role is in the advancement of justice, which I would like to think is why most people decide to pursue a career in law, that they want to ensure that people have justice and that they can ensure that the system is working fairly efficiently and that we're advancing the rule of law. That's great, Ali, thank you. I wanna bring you in, Rebecca. Um, you know, sort of building on what Ali has said here, what would you say 
working for NSRLP has changed or, you know, just stimulated about your views about future changes in the legal profession and in the delivery of legal services? What kinds of ways do you think the work you've done with NSRLP suggests to you there need to be changes and what would they look like? I think for me, before commencing uh, my work with NSRLP, I really understood a lot of access to justice issues as being largely financial barriers. I mean, there obviously are others based on different people from different like marginalized groups that, that face different barriers, such as like language barriers, things like that. But I think I understood at a surface level, the biggest challenge for self-represented litigants being, oh, I don't have enough money. I can't afford a lawyer. How am I going to do this? But as I have proceeded through my own law degree, where it's my full-time job to absorb as much legal information as I can, I have come to realize that one of the most significant gaps in access to justice for the everyday person is just access to the basic um, information and understanding of the law that affects all of us. And it has really put into perspective for me this idea that I am now part of this small group that has access to this information that we really all need to know. Like the amount of times I've been in a classroom and learned something and thought to myself, how did I not already know that? Like, I <laughs> probably should have, I probably could have been in a situation where understanding the legality or the procedure of doing this sort of thing would have benefited me in that scenario. So I think when I think about what the future of the legal system needs to look like with that in mind, it's just improving access to procedural justice in a way that puts access to legal information at the forefront. And I think, um, much like Ali said, uh, how can I position myself as a future lawyer to enable that and to sort of uh, begin to dismantle this unnecessary monopoly that lawyers enjoy? And I think a lot of it is, you know, we view ourselves as going to law school and paying all this money and working really hard to gain access to this legal information. So I think perhaps in a subconscious way, we think this is mine. Like I, I have earned this in a way that other people haven't. And this is how I'm going to keep my job. And I think as a future lawyer, I want to be very cognizant of the fact that this knowledge really is for everyone. And it's going to improve the entire system going forward. Wow, I'm going to miss you guys such a lot. Let me bring Kayla in here because Kayla has done all sorts of work for us around issues of, of legal literacy, which is effectively what you're talking about, Rebecca, trying to get information to people in a way that is easy for them to access and make sense and they can apply. Kayla, what is, what is your experience with us? Do you think, has it changed at all what you think about how legal services have to be delivered in, in the future and, and how you might be a part of that? this might sound really naive but like coming into law school like I didn't realize how much how many problems there were with legal services or how inaccessible they were and I know that sounds really naive and but I don't know that that would have changed just from my coursework I know like Windsor Law offers A to J but dual students I'm a dual student um we don't take A to J so I think that's something that wouldn't have been recognized that accessibility right. issue with legal services and and I mean I had the opportunity to speak with SRLs through Gmail or over the phone or at our events. And one of the major things that they were telling me is like, it's just not accessible. And of primary concern was affordability and predictability of costs. And I think 
as we're going into the future and the profession is thinking about, okay, how can legal services adapt to ensure that there is accessibility? I think those things have to be at the forefront. And yeah, those are things that I honestly truly did not realize before working with NSRLP. And I think like Rebecca was saying, the work that we do bridges that gap, that information gap at least, because if they're not, if people aren't able to get access to legal services, at least, you know, they can obtain some information through the reports that we produce or the research, the primers that we prepare. And I think working on those for me and, and being able to talk to SRLs directly was an invaluable experience. And I'm, I feel so lucky that I, that I had the opportunity to do that. But I think definitely moving forward, legal services are uh, in for a big change. And let, of- let me just ask you, in addition to that, Kayla, you know, we were seeing all these changes right now during the pandemic, during as a response to COVID-19. And, you know, we're just starting to have this discussion about whether some of the changes that we're seeing are, you know, going to be something that will enhance access to justice, something that we may want to, you know, make more permanent going forward. There's a lot of discussion about this. I'm involved in discussions in BC there with the advisory group to the attorney general. So what are you seeing in the current crisis? And goodness knows, you've been one of the stalwart people who's been putting together our daily updated COVID resources. It's done a fantastic job. What kinds of changes are you seeing that you think might be a harbinger of things to come that would be, you know, good changes into the future? So two things that, like I noted, that I think I'm surprised haven't been implemented already were e-filing, electronic filing of documents, because I think the amount of stress that would alleviate and time that would save not only SRLs, everyone, is incredible. And then the other thing is the virtual hearings. And I think that might, I don't know, take a bit more time, like training everyone on how to how to do virtual hearings and, and ensuring people have access to proper internet services and things like that. But I think that's another thing that would alleviate a lot of stress and save people time. I'm thinking about people who have to take time off work like SRLs who are representing themselves having to take time off work, a full day off work to travel to the courthouse and wait to be heard. And I'm thinking about, okay, if they're at work, maybe, you know, it's over their lunch break instead of having to take an entire day vacation day that they were thinking of using to go on vacation with their family or or do something like that. Like, and filing the same thing, e-filing, like I've sat at the courthouse waiting to file. I don't know if any of you guys have, but like my firm sent me last summer and prior to law school I worked at a firm where I had to go to the courthouse and sit and you sit there all day like pretty much waiting to file and those are two things I hope. So Ali same question for you Uh, in particular I'm interested in what you think from the perspective of someone who's about to begin articles with the Ministry of the Attorney General in Ontario focusing on justice modernization. And I'm wondering whether some of this looks a little different now than it did when you were first off with that position. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of discussion and we've seen so many news articles about this, about the idea of treating this crisis as a catalyst for change to ensure that, sure, there are things that need to be done right now with regard to COVID-19, but that hopefully we can use this opportunity um, to continue to develop 
systems for access to justice um, that aren't just one-offs for this short period, hopefully short period of time. Of course, we don't know exactly how long this pandemic will last, but um, hopefully there's a way to continue that progress. And I think Kayla really discussed some interesting components there. Um, and I think there's one other one that we've seen happening more often that I think is really worth highlighting, um, which again is related to this issue of technology. And that's about using virtual witnessing of wills, powers of attorney, and even swearing affidavits. I and mean, I think that's something else that wasn't really thought of as possible before. And in fact, I think there was a lot of um, reluctance to use systems like this. I know for some lawyers, they're still using quite old technology when we think about things like fax machines um, and even just a general reluctance to use modern day technology. So I'm hoping that this discussion of the way that technology can play a larger role will be accepted more um, once this crisis has abated. And I think another area that I'm hoping to see a little bit more progress in is about plain language information, along with more user-centric design. I think one of the reasons that we actually created that page on our website with all these summaries was that, yes, it is convenient to have all of the jurisdictions in one spot, but also because some of the um, posts that were being made or some of the updates that were be being presented from individual jurisdictions weren't particularly clear. Or even when they were clear, they were written for lawyers rather than the members of the public. And so I think hopefully we'll see more of a shift towards structuring a system that actually caters to the individuals, the users of the system. And I think we've seen stuff like that already. When we talk about user-centric design, there's been a lot of great work out of BC. Um, I know with the advocacy group that you're going to be working with, there's going to be more coming, hopefully. But even stuff that already exists with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which I know we had Shannon Salter on here a little while ago on the podcast, um, and just seeing more work like that. But I think the one last element that I'd wanted to touch on was this idea of the monopoly of services that lawyers have. And I think when we're talking about how the system needs to change, we can't really have that conversation without having a conversation about what deregulation of legal services looks like. If we're talking about making a more efficient system, we need to talk about who can play what role in that system, whether that's lawyers, paralegals, alternative legal service providers, I'm ensuring that people have access to both legal advice and legal information to navigate this process. Thanks, Ali. That's great. I want to end, guys, with asking you maybe a little bit more of a personal question, as I often try to in the podcast. And, um, you know, over the last three years, I've got to know each of you pretty well. And I think, you know, I care pretty deeply about you moving forward. And one of the things I'm very aware of is just how much uncertainty your generation is facing. And that is, you know, forget the pandemic for a moment, that is economic uncertainty um, and insecurity, that is changes in the legal profession, that is climate change. And now also we have the pandemic. You know, I think that perhaps more than any other generation, you know, yours is dealing with a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty, and that creates, you know, anxiety as well. So what do you think, you know, you really feel is important? And, and, I, I, and I'm going to come to you first, Megan, with this question. What do you think is it important for you 
to see as you know challenges that you have to deal with and how do you deal with these challenges of uncertainty and what if anything would you like the legal profession to be doing to provide uh, a place in which these challenges can be you know looked at constructively and moved forward i have a few thoughts on this question first i think it's fair to say that Everything that my um, colleagues have been discussing is magnified during this pandemic. Um, and that in a time of great uncertainty, other issues that may have seemed less obvious are now crystallized. I also think, you know, change is uncomfortable and uncertainty is uncomfortable. And I think the biggest thing that people, not just lawyers or students, but everyone, is trying to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I know it sounds like I just said the same word 10 times, but I know that we've already discussed how this pandemic is offering opportunity to change. And it's overwhelming when you hear the news or people saying, you know, things will never be the same. And I think it's important to take a step back and think, was that the way it's supposed to be in the first place? Change is necessary to evolve and the legal system needs change. We know this, it's not a secret. In time of crisis is also time of great invention. And I think this, this is the time. You know, World War II, they made a computer. I think during the pandemic, it's appropriate to ask for the courts to go wireless. I don't think it's a big ask. Megan, you're eternal optimism is showing which is a wonderful thing i love it rebecca i'm going to come to you finally and ask you for a, a response to this question too and and i think that you know it is fair as well as recognizing the opportunities here to say that the current situation is creating a great deal of anxiety you know for law students in respect of all kinds of uncertainties about their future and the bar exams and so forth, but for your generation in general. Um, and I'm just thinking about what you guys feel is the way forward here for you personally and how you're going to deal with these challenges going forward. So Rebecca, do you want to say a couple of words on that? I think Megan captured a lot that I find uh, I agree with in more of a macro sense. I think one of the most positive sort of work narratives, if I can talk more about that environment um, that I've seen come out of the pandemic is just the shift away from like toxic productivity culture. And I think that that's something we can all relate to, um, whether it comes to school, whether it comes to work, um, I definitely fall victim to it constantly. And it's always been a real struggle for me to try to find any sort of balance. And I am well aware that I am entering a profession that in many ways is entirely antiquated and in the list of existing professions will probably be the last one to, you know, let you like go play ping pong for lunch at work or whatever. So I do think, and I do hope that, um, our generation, at least having been through a lot of these um, obstacles, can maybe bring this discussion more, more to the forefront. Mental health is such a critical issue in this profession. And um, as much as we do like to sort of give it lip service, now and then at the end of the day, people are constantly overworked. People are constantly striving to meet goals that are simply unattainable. People don't spend enough time with their families. People don't turn their brain off when they go home. This is a 24 seven 
profession and it's not healthy. We see people, you know, leaving the profession on a regular basis because it's just simply not sustainable. And um, I think that, like Megan said, this is an amazing opportunity to reflect on the things that aren't working, um, both from a sort of legal services offering perspective, but also from um, the other end, which is which is the profession itself. And I think that if we can sort of be a part of adjusting the idea that we need to be working ourselves to death in order to be successful in this business, then I do think that that's something positive that can potentially come out of this. I really like that idea, Rebecca. And, uh, you know, I have to admit that I probably haven't always been a very good example to you guys about this, but I am very conscious that your generation, I hope, is going to do something that my generation has not been able to do, which is to be much clearer about that balance and the importance of that balance. So can we just end with each of you, just a sentence, a single sentence, tell me what you're gonna miss the most about working with NSRLP. Who wants to begin? So I guess there's so many things, but one that I've really grown to enjoy these past few years is working on this podcast. Um, and that's involved not just writing and reading the another news segment, but also just hearing snippets of the podcast before it's released, um, knowing the schedule in advance, knowing which episodes to look forward to. Um, and there's just so much great work that, that we do, but this podcast has a special place in my heart. Thanks, Ali, and mine too, as you well know. Who wants to go next? Kayla, come on. I know you're gonna miss us, Kayla. I'm gonna miss everyone so much, <laughs> first of all, um, but hopefully we'll all stay in touch as much as possible. I think, just the work that we do, like making it, I feel like we're making a difference. And I think that's something that I will really miss and, and just interacting with the people that I've been able to interact with over these past three years. So, so those, yeah, I think, I think making a difference and feeling, feeling like I am making a difference is something I'll really, really miss about working with the project. Thanks, Kayla. You're going to go on making a difference, I'm sure. Megan? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe we're coming to a close. It's going to be hard to leave for sure. My favorite part is kind of what I'm going to miss the most is the development of SRL precedent. And in that, I mean this journey that I've taken sometimes with another RA or with Julie. We come across a case that has an SRL party that issues that we think in the case or some aspect of the judgment that we find problematic. And we begin searching and we begin digging. And uh, since working at an SRLP, we've had several cases go to the Court of Appeal in different jurisdictions and we've won um, the NSRLP being an intervener. And it's really interesting to see how court regulations and legislation is being interpreted in a way that is sometimes not beneficial for self reps and then taking that case to the Court of Appeal and having um, a superior court saying that that method of th that method of using that law in that particular way is problematic, and it's problematic for self reps. So I'm going to say we saw in the Lima case, which is in fact last the last yeah. podcast before this one. So yes, yeah, so we great example uh, there. If you've been listening to the podcast, you may be familiar. We also have a lot of blog posts on our court of appeal cases, but I think it's really important work and it's it's nice to get a win and it's nice for access to justice to be making strides forwards and not 
always kind of uh, rolling a you know stone up a mountain. Concrete action. Rebecca, give us the last word. What are you going to miss? <laughs> Honestly, I was trying to reflect on the past three years and all of the different projects I've worked on and what I've spent my time on. And every single time I come back to how uh, unbelievably moved and inspired I was by the dialogue event last year. And um, mm. I think what I'm going to miss most about working with NSRLP is just being able to occupy a space where you constantly see really productive conversation happening between uh, different stakeholders that normally don't talk to one another. Just being able to be part of something where those conversations are able to take place on a regular basis is really amazing and is uh, one of the most important parts of this work that I'm really going to miss. Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you, Ali, Kayla, Megan. We will be staying in touch and we thank you so much for all the work that you've done for SRLs and the work that you're going to continue to do, I know, in the profession of the future. So I just want to start off by saying um, that gushing a lot, gushing, gushing a little bit, yeah, how much we adore all four of these wonderful people who have worked so hard for us over the last three years and have really made such a big impact on NSRLP and each of them, honestly, on, I think, both of us personally. And I know from Moya as well, they've been just a delight to work with, all of them. They've been hugely supportive um, and mentoring of the newer RAs that we have who are also wonderful. But these four just are, you know, really shining stars. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what each of them go on to do um, because I have no doubt that they're going to continue to make a big impact um, in the justice system. And they're all just wonderful people. And I'm so excited about now, I, I, I did say to Dana before we recorded this outro that she was only allowed to gush so much. <laughs> but I want to just make a small confession before we talk about some of the themes that we saw here that we wanted to highlight. And that mm -hmm. is that listening to this back, um, obviously I did the original interview, but listening to the recording back did bring me to tears because I mm -hmm. think that these guys are what gives me hope for the future of the legal profession and the future of the system. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, as you said, there were some really great themes that, that were in this conversation that all four of them talked about, and they all kind of talked about all of these things, but we wanted to highlight just a few of them. And to start off with, we want to kind of note that the reason this episode has the title that it does, which is Comfortable Being Uncomfortable, is from Megan's great line. And for, for me, and I know for you as well, Julie, this harkens back to earlier podcast episode that you did with Megan that I will say, if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to it. It's called Crohn's versus Law School. And it's a great episode. And Megan is very open about her own experience with Crohn's disease and what it's like to go through law school, having a chronic illness. And she talked in there about how one of the things about having a chronic illness um, as you know as well, really, is the way you learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I love mm -hmm. that she brought that theme back into this conversation. And I think it struck a chord, especially for right now, as you're saying, this is such a weird time for these students to be starting their careers um, with everything going on. And it's uncomfortable for everybody. And 
I, I love that she brought attention to that, that they're, they kind of, you know, they're a little prepared for that. They're now kind of ready to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and, you know, shaking things up. And yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, that was something that we really heard in all with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and because as well as, you know, they have worked with, NSRP and work directly with self reps. Um, pretty much every every research assistant who comes to the project begins with a stint on our Gmail, which is mm-hmm. answering the public facing emails. And so they, for them, that is a completely normal part of their law school experience, which they wouldn't have had in the same way otherwise. And it means that they go into the profession with such a deep awareness of the ways in which people are struggling for access to justice and and I think that that also makes them realize that in order to change that there is going to be discomfort ahead for the legal profession and I think that these four are going to be exemplars in encouraging their peers in the legal profession to move forward on that. Absolutely. Uh, as, as Megan said, and I know that this kind of goes for all of them because they have been with us since first year, uh, but I think this goes for all of our RAs as well, that for them, you know, what they learn through the NFLP and with working with self-reps, that the experience of, of self-reps becomes the foundation of their legal education. Yes. And what um, is normal. And it shapes their views. Yeah. And yeah. what's normal. Exactly. So then another thing that I really loved was Ali mentioning how he first got involved with NFLP and it was through coming to the workshop that we led that year in the fall and how he was first struck by those stats on NFL. Yes. So just the numbers, how many self-reps exist in the justice system and how pervasive this issue is. And that struck me because I think it's sometimes easy for us to forget how powerful those numbers and those statistics are but uh, you know for me as well that was you know the first thing that really really uh, caught my attention was those arresting numbers to understand that you know generally half of family litigants are coming to court without counsel and I know from you know conversations with friends and family over the last few years that those are shocking statistics and they're kind of at the basis here and and um, of everything that we do, and we can't forget how powerful those those numbers are and how much a difference they can make. The other thing that Ali said that I thought you know was so important in relation to this was that he, as he believes most people, came to law school in order to try to make a difference in, in people's right. lives, in order to contribute. And I think that those statistics that show just how many people are out there wanting and needing some kind of assistance with legal problems but not able to access it is mm-hmm. is really core to understanding what it means to go forward to being a lawyer who wants to make a difference. And I mm-hmm. and I think that Ali and the other three have all sort of brought those consciousnesses together in their minds that if they really want to make a difference, then a prime place that, that needs to happen is in relation to access to justice. And then Rebecca, related to that, um, talked about how for her, one of the things that has, you know, kind of been front and center uh, that she's learned over the last few years is the importance of legal information to the public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, you know, I think about the importance of information literacy and public legal education. And as, as you mentioned when we were talking all of this over, that legal information is one of the things that self-reps tell us they need most. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and just as Rebecca pointed out, there's this huge gap um, between, you know, the specialized knowledge that only a few people are allowed to have versus, you know, what really should be information that everybody should, should have. Yeah. Yes. And her talking about sitting in class feeling like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't know that. Why doesn't everybody know that? Yes, um, not just for law school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's something we've seen borne out, haven't we, Dana, so often in all of our research data, that what self-reps say causes them the most stress and the most difficulty. And and what actually causes, I think, the greatest practical issues for the courts in accommodating self-reps is that people don't understand the procedure. And I think that this is something that is increasingly coming to the fore, that legal procedural advice and coaching on navigating court processes and legal processes isn't something that needs to be done just by lawyers. You don't need to be licensed to practice law to give someone legal information. And mm-hmm. as Rebecca and then subsequently Kayla also said in this conversation, so much of what NSRLP does and what these guys have learned to do so effectively is to take what is often arcane, complex, you know, very difficult to understand language around procedure and present it in a sort of translated form to the public so they can use it. Right. And, you know, again, related to that, Kayla talks about um, that experience of sitting in a courthouse for, you know, most of the day trying yeah. to, to, to file Yeah, and to bring it back, of course, to the current situation with COVID, and now we're finally seeing the justice system uh, adapting a little bit and, you know, recognizing that, oh, perhaps people can file documents electronically. And her yeah. saying, like, you know, hoping that sticks around, and as she, you know, points out, that would be hugely helpful for self-represented litigants, but, you know, obviously it would also be helpful for um, lawyers and other uh, justice system workers. That's right. And I mean, there's an interesting paradox here because, you know, from Megan's, you know, very important point about getting comfortable with discomfort and uncertainty Mm -hmm. and change. On the other hand, as Kayla's saying, there are all kinds of ways in which we can make the system less uncertain and less unpredictable and anxiety creating. And some of those are simply, I think, as Megan put it, by the courts go wireless. It's not a big ask. And that at least means you don't have to take the day off work and sit in the registry or if you're a you know, an associate or or an articling student sit in the registry to file. And there are ways in which, you know, Kayla particularly highlighted hearing stories about the unpredictability of legal fees from people who are self-represented. And, you know, that's something else that we can do much better about. We don't have to have this kind of 18th century model of, you know, we're just going to go along for as long as it takes and then there's going to be a bill at the end. There can be so much more that makes this more certain and predictable for people, and a lot of that lies with technology. Mm, Exactly. So to wrap up, I think, you know, we just want to say congratulations to... I know, uh, they're not getting a proper convocation, so... No, We're we're giving you a send-off, guys. Yeah. Thank you for everything Congratulations, and thank you, yeah, thank you for everything. Hello there, my name is Jordan Furlong and I am your temporary host of In The News, where we gather and round up some stories relating to access to justice and legal system innovation from across Canada and around the world. 
And today we are more in the latter category. We are taking our two main stories from sunny California. And the first bit of news there is a really interesting development that came out of the State Bar of California, the regulator of legal services in that state, which agreed to move ahead with consideration of what they call a regulatory sandbox. Now, it's kind of a weird weird name, and I'm not sure why they chose to call it that, but what a regulatory sandbox essentially is, is a safe space or an authorized zone for innovative new types of legal services providers who aren't lawyers or who aren't involved in some way with the legal profession. And the idea here essentially is that, as I'm sure you know, whenever uh, a new or innovative provider of legal services comes along and says, hey, we want to be able to help people out who have a legal problem or give them a legal solution of some kind, and the regulator says, well, you're not a lawyer, so you can't do it, you're not allowed, whatever. And, and I think a number of regulators are coming to realize this is kind of a short-sighted approach. And what the sandbox operation essentially says to these new providers from the regulator is, look, you come on in here, you provide these services, you help people out, you give them the, the products and the services they need to get a remedy to their legal situation, whatever the case might be, and we will supervise you, we'll keep an eye on you, we will check in to see how it's all coming along. If we're seeing problems, if there's a serious issue with the public being exploited or abused, then okay, of course we're going step in but otherwise we will let you do what you want to do and after six months nine months a year whatever how long it takes if it appears very clearly that you are helping people out and you're not a threat to the public interest then we will essentially give you our blessing and you can go ahead and keep on doing what you're doing which is i, I think a really significant advance in terms of how legal services uh, have been regulated now, at the moment, the only jurisdiction in the world that has one of these uh, sandboxes, even in the works, is Utah uh, in the U.S., although a couple of other states are looking into it. But for California to move into this area is really significant. It is such a massive state, tens of millions of people, and, uh, and really, California has been the harbinger of regulatory reform in the United States for, for many years. Now, they are still, I would say, a year or two away from being able to even set the sandbox up. It takes a while for these things to, to grind through, but I think it's a significant step forward and a, and, and a real sea change in how legal services are regulated that is going to be to the benefit of individuals, consumers, small businesses, families that traditionally have been really frozen out of the legal services market. Now, I would suspect that within a year, maybe a year and a half, we will see at least one Canadian jurisdiction set up one of these sandboxes as well, maybe even more. So change is coming and change is, I think, all to the good. Interestingly, the second bit of news this week also comes from the Golden State. Los Angeles County Superior Court announced this week it's launching a free online tool that's going to help parents who are trying to negotiate and resolve child custody disputes and visitation issues without having to come to court. Now, under this new system, parents or their lawyers, if they want to get them involved, can invite the other parent to participate in an online dispute resolution process that is geared towards setting up a parenting plan of some kind. And the system will help you develop the plan and it'll give you pointers and what have you. But if you, if, if both parents can come to an agreement 
on a plan, then the, the system uh, sets the whole thing up, prints it out, uh, all you have to do is one of the parents, is then send a copy of this plan to the court system, they will look at it, and if the court doesn't see a problem, and in most cases they don't, because unless there's clear abuse or exploitation taking place, they'll be fine with it, it becomes a court order. It is fully enforceable, fully authorized. And again, there's so much to like about this. It does not uh, have to involve lawyers. I mean, it can if you want, but you can do this entirely yourself as a parent of a child. It is parent-driven. That's just so important, right? I think this is the growing realization that everybody understands that, look, parents know best what their own situation is and what their kid's situation is, right? Judges don't know better. Lawyers don't know better. Anything that is really going to work and be innovative and effective in this system is going to have to be parent-driven. And I love the fact that the court is involved primarily to provide the platform in which all this takes place, but otherwise simply at the very end to say, okay, we accept the plan you have developed yourselves, we enforce it, we authorize it, and other than that, go on with your lives. And I think that's the kind of minimalist approach the court should be taking and the justice system should be taking. I would love to see this kind of system flourish in Los Angeles and to spread right around the world, frankly, as fast as we can. Last entry today, we're going to talk briefly because we've heard, of course, in today's podcast about some of the graduating students. And I want to talk a little bit about law school because uh, so much of the way that the legal system does not work as well as it should is largely, I think, because of the way that lawyers still to this day continue to be educated and trained and, and developed. And it's very archaic, as we know, and it it's hasn't changed much than from what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. But there's a really interesting editorial this week, or an op-ed, I guess, in the Globe and Mail from a law student who just graduated from Osgoode Hall Law School had to finish the last, whatever, two, two and a half months of his program online. And he said, you know what? This is great. It worked completely fine for me to do this online. It was easier for me. It was cheaper for me. I didn't have to commute back and forth and, and do all of these, uh, uh, go to all this extra expense and hassle. And he foresaw a future in which legal education that is conducted par at least partially online becomes cheaper, becomes more affordable. And the less debt that we burden law students with coming out of law school, the easier it's going to be for them to set up practices and businesses that can help consumers, families, individuals individuals, small businesses, again, all the people who've been frozen out of the legal system traditionally. I think this is a real opportunity for the legal profession to really lean into and into the same direction that everybody else is pushing and say, we can do this differently, we can do this better for the benefit of the justice system and for the benefit of the public and members of the society that we are here to serve. I'm looking forward to more of these examples in the weeks and the months and years to come. And I'm looking forward to spending the next two weeks with you here on the podcast. Thanks very much for your time today. And I hope this finds you very well wherever you are. I'm Jordan Furlong.